Hello and welcome to the Elstian Legal Podcast, bringing you expert views and analysis of the legal aspects of transfer pricing compliance. Our focus is always on real-world, practical insights that you can apply in your everyday work. This episode is a discussion between our co-founder Paul Sutton and our guest Andy Bubb. Andy is special counsel in tax disputes at Clayton Utes, based in Melbourne, Australia. Paul and Andy discuss three cases that are currently ongoing in Australia, Pepsi, Singtel and Mylan. Andy gives us the latest state of play at the time of recording. Paul and Andy discuss the specific issues at hand and they try to identify some particular key points that transfer pricing professionals will want to bear in mind in future. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Hi, Andy. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on this this podcast. So many thanks uh, in, indeed for sparing the time. Um, we're going to talk about three cases today. So Pepsi, Singtel and, and Mylan. So let's just dive right in um, and start with Pepsi. Maybe you can give us the, the overview as to what the case involved and what we know about it. Yeah, perfect. Absolutely happy to, Paul. And um, thank you for having me on the podcast. It's good to see you again. Um, so maybe a, a little bit of background first on the Pepsi case in Australia and talking about Australia's diverted profits tax. So Australia introduced that tax um, in 2017. And there's a few administrative aspects of, of that tax that make it a little bit unusual. And it's it's worth just walking through a few of those first because it, it highlights why this case has come to the courts. Um, when the DPT was introduced in Australia, a lot of the messaging was around it being um, something of a stick. So really something in terms of a tax that could bring multinationals to the table faster with the ATO in, in dealing with transfer pricing disputes. And the way that it did that was through a few of the features that it has. One is that it's a 40% tax, whereas the corporate tax rate in Australia generally is 30% for companies. Um, the tax is also payable up front when the taxpayer gets the assessment. And that's unusual because normally in Australia, if there's a tax dispute, um, only half of the tax is often paid up front. And normally there's an arrangement with the tax office um, to pay half and defer half while the dispute happens. Whereas the DPT, you need to pay the whole amount effectively immediately. It's within 21 days of getting your assessment. The next thing that happens under our DPT is there's a 12 month review period. And in that window, a taxpayer needs to provide the ATO with all of the evidence that it thinks um, shows that it's not liable for the tax. And the way that that rule works is if the taxpayer doesn't provide uh, certain information to the ATO in that 12 month window, they then can't use that information in any later court proceedings. Now, there's a couple of carve outs. So one example is um, if you give information to the ATO and later you want to use an expert in the court case, then you can get an expert opinion in relation to that information you gave to the ATO. So the expert opinions, new information you're allowed to use. Um, but apart from that, um, and apart from getting permission from the court um, to be able to rely on information you didn't give to the ATO, um, you otherwise can't use that information you didn't hand over. So that's another way that this DPT really forces taxpayers to come to the table um, mm -hmm. and engage with the ATO and provide information. Got it. So, so it's, it sounds like it's 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 very much a deterrent, um, so a, a big stick to help encourage compliance with transfer pricing rules and, and related provisions. Yeah, absolutely, it is, and it was um, messaged that way publicly when it was introduced through the explanatory memorandum process and so on, as as that being 
um, one of the goals of this legislation. And, and like some other legislation in Australia, like the multinational anti-avoidance law that came before the DPT, um, really one of the goals of this legislation was not for the actual tax to apply to lots of different groups, but it was to encourage groups um, to change any aggressive structures that might have been caught by these taxes um, into something that was more palatable. Um, and so um, while that was the goal, um, here we are with the DPT case, <laughs> uh, which we possibly didn't expect. So um, I might just touch on a couple of the technical rules as well before we sure. um, dive into the case facts, sure. because it'll, it'll help um, the listeners to understand why particular points are relevant in the case. Um, and so Australia's DPT has a purpose test. And so having a purpose test is a bit of a hybrid um, in this context, looking at diverted profits, it obviously involves um, elements of economics that would be normal analysis under transfer pricing rules. But then the purpose test is like something out of a general anti-avoidance rule. Um, so it's a bit of a hybrid in that sense with the purpose test applying. Um, but the purpose test applies in an interesting way that's different to some of our other tax legislation in Australia. Um, one of the interesting points is that um, it applies a principal purpose test. Now, under our general anti-avoidance rule, um, it applies a dominant purpose test. Um, and so the DPT purpose test is lower. It means that arrangements where there's a tax purpose and some other commercial purposes, um, the DPT can still apply if the tax purposes are principal, not dominant. Right. You might ask, you <laughs> might ask, how low is that bar? Is principal much lower than dominant? Is it way low, lower than dominant? Um, it has never been considered yet by a court and we're about to find out in Pepsi. Right, exciting. So should we move on to the, the facts or what, what we know about the facts? Yeah, and um, interesting to touch on what we know about the facts. So the, the Pepsi case um, is due to be heard soon in Australia. We're a couple of weeks out from the hearing. It's scheduled to be heard for 10 days. And the relevance of um, the case not having yet been heard is that the information that's available in the public domain is still a bit limited. Um, but there is some information based on the court filings. So um, the transaction that is at issue involves Pepsi entities that are located in the US, in Singapore, and in Australia. Mm -hmm. And those entities entered into agreements with um, a bottler in Australia, um, and that entity or group is called Schweppes in Australia. Schweppes is owned by um, the Asahi Beverage Group. Um, the specific transactions that are at issue um, involve the arrangements around the concentrate being sold by Pepsi into Australia, being sold to the Schweppes third-party entity. Um, and the court case will focus on those agreements and in particular what rights were exchanged and what's being paid for under those agreements. And from what we can tell from the filings that have happened so far, um, the Schweppes Australia entity makes payments to Pepsi in Singapore for use of certain IP um, and other um, concentrate that it acquires to be able to bottle the concentrate and sell it in Australia. 
-hmm. And the ATO's concern is with what those payments that are being made to Pepsi Singapore are payments for, and specifically whether there's a payment being made for any IP and therefore a royalty being paid. And the reason the ATO is interested in that um, is possibly twofold. First, there's a 10% royalty withholding tax on payments that are made from Australia to Singapore. And in the court documents that have been filed, the ATO is asserting that no royalty withholding tax was paid here under these contracts. Um, now, that might be because the contracts didn't um, draw a distinction um, between what a lump sum paid, what a lump sum was paid for in these circumstances. And so it didn't draw a division to say, um, these are all of the different um, rights that are being obtained by Schweppes in Australia. So I might've said um, that Schweppes Australia was being given a bundle of rights and in return for that was paying a lump sum amount. Um, I think the ATO's assertion here is that there wasn't a um, clear IP being provided and royalty being paid in return. Um, now, all of that is a bit unclear based on what we can and can't see so far in the filings, but um, we expect that the case is listed for 10 days. So there'll be quite a lot of um, analysis around exactly what was contained in those contracts in terms of rights and obligations, what exactly was being paid for, mm -hmm. um, and also what, what activities exactly were happening in Australia in connection uh, with the IP that either was or wasn't being provided and used. So, so does it look like the most the, the main focus of the case is withholding tax as opposed to transfer pricing? Because the way I understand it, it's actually about payments between unconnected parties. So the Schweppes group, which is not controlled by the Pepsi group, it's an it's a entirely separate enterprise or, or, or se separate group. And it's it's it looks like it's about the character of those payments from Schweppes in Australia to the Pepsi entity in, in Singapore for a bundle of rights? Yeah, that, that's right, Paul. So um, there's really a couple of um, couple of ways of looking at it. There is that third party transaction and mm -hmm. the question goes to whether or not a royalty um, should be paid. And given that the DPT has been applied, um, it's probably been concluded that no royalty withholding tax is actually payable under the primary Australian provisions. And so it's been arguably avoided and that's why we land, land in these provisions. Um, for the DPT to apply, there does need to be um, arrangements between an Australian entity and its foreign affiliates. Mm -hmm. And so the way that that requirement is probably triggered here might be by looking at what the arrangements are between the different Pepsi entities. So even though um, the transaction that's being focused on here is one between third parties, um, there might also be focus in the case on what the arrangements are between, say, Pepsi in the US in terms of Headco um, and what arrangements it has down the line with Pepsi Singapore and then what arrangements they have in Australia with Pepsi Australia. Right. So um, that will come into play as well, we expect, because um, there ordinarily would be some sort of division of who holds what IP who performs what functions in relation to that IP within the Pepsi group around the world. 
in 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 other words, just in my simplistic way. So so there's there's one question about the the character of the payments and withholding tax and 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 so on uh, in terms of elements relating to royalties. The other question is who should the counterparty to that arrangement with Schweppes have been? Is it appropriate that it was uh, the Pepsi entity in Singapore, or should it be should it be a combination of that and other entities receiving the the benefit of those payments for one of a better term? Exactly right. And these cases are hard because when you look for comparable arrangements um, between independent third parties in relation to use of IP, um, it's inherently difficult because um, I don't know the Pepsi group, but presumably their formula is a very tightly held <laughs> piece of IP. Sure. Yeah. Um, how, how do you work out what the arrangements might be with an independent third party um, and therefore how do you reflect that between the US and Singapore and Australia so um, the case will be really interesting from that perspective because there are different layers to this analysis um, there's I guess the Pepsi internal arrangements and then um, the transaction with a third party on top of that as well um, but all of these issues in relation to the use of intangibles um, cross-border licensing of IP um, they're obviously arising here in a DPT context, um, but clearly very relevant to normal transfer pricing analysis, um, as well as other provisions like just the, the standard royalty withholding tax provisions in Australia and other countries too. Yeah, ab ab absolutely. And what, what one of the interesting things for, for me in, in speaking to someone like you, a tax litigator, is that we probably look at transactions um, 10 years apart. In other words, I'm looking at, at things trying to create the, the arrangements in advance of the relevant periods during which they're being operated. And you're looking at it maybe 10 years down the line when not only has the challenge happened, but there's been, uh, you know, they've been unable to resolve the disputes and, and therefore you're helping to resolve that. That the, the kind of issues that you're talking about, basically unbundling the bundle or, or deconstructing the bundle when it comprises physical products like the actual concentrate itself, know-how brands, um, maybe the, the, uh, the whole marketing method, um, if, if there are similarities with the Coca-Cola arrangements, um, then it will be fascinating to see how that is looked at by the court. Yeah, it, it will be. And um, maybe taking up your point on, you know, looking at arrangements 10 years down the line, it is an interesting feature here of the DPT that um, I think this Pepsi case concerns the, uh, I think it's the 2018 and 19 years or around right. that sort of time frame. So we're looking about five years ago, which in a disputes context, we'll talk about um, Singtel and Mylan in a minute, but um, those other cases concern transactions that happened 15 years ago or 20 years ago. So yep. um, in, in part, um, this taxpayer is at least thinking about transactions that only happened a few years ago, mm -hmm. um, can hopefully find the documents um, from around that time to be able to right. put its case together in a relatively easy format as compared to um, maybe the, the more traditional tax dispute that might take, um, you know, five additional years on top of that. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I guess with, with this, the, the Pepsi case, it's a little bit early in the journey of, uh, of the disputes to take any kind of action points or learning points from it. Um, is, is there anything that you particularly highlight at this point? Um, 
probably the um, the key point to highlight is that the case is going to be running in about two weeks' time, which unfortunately right. for your listeners means that um, they might know about it by the time they're listening to this. Um, I think a couple of the things we mentioned on the way through there, um, the DPT has a principal purpose test and it will be really interesting to see how that's applied. Um, it, that test is um, a new test that was introduced in Australia with this legislation. So, um, for example, the general anti-avoidance rule has a dominant purpose test. So we know that this is a lower bar. Um, how much lower? We'll wait and see what the court says. But mm -hmm. um, initial cases like this one for a new set of legislation are very interesting for um, how the ATO will go about its compliance program for all of the other cases where it's thinking about applying DPT or might have already issued DPT assessments. So any taxpayers that are in that space will obviously be watching um, this case go through and waiting to see a judgment as well, because that'll really inform whether they whether they feel quite good or quite bad about their cases, seeing yep. which way this one goes. Yeah, excellent. And I guess from, from my perspective in terms of designing transactions, in advance, we often talk about legal anchor points. In other words, we need to map the transfer pricing analysis onto the way that the group actually interacts with the outside world. So which entities are granting licenses or receiving licenses or making supplies or receiving supplies and so on. But what this case really reminds us all is those anchor points are not are not set in stone, as it were. You know, that's not a given. And groups do need to think about their supply chains and um, the routing of third-party transactions um, so that it stacks up from a an overall tra transfer pricing and value chain perspective um, and hopefully minimise the risk of challenge. Yeah, and um, another sort of reminder that this DPT um, gives to groups who have done transactions and, and might have done it in the most perfect way that you just described. And if they did that in 2016, Mm. Um, the DPT hadn't yet come along and our DPT in Australia can apply to structures that were already in place before the implementation of this law. Wow. So okay. it does um, remind you <laughs> that yep. you need to reassess from time to time because um, with any significant legislation, you do need to cross-check um, whether historical structures get grandfathered or whether they might be subject to new laws that are introduced. Great. So, so let's move on and talk about the, the Singtel case. Andy, would you mind just giving us an update on the story so far? Sure. So I think, Paul, um, you might have had um, a previous episode that covered some of the Singtel case. So I won't go through the whole first instance decision in detail, but the case is a related party financing case. It's a TP dispute um, and it concerns intragroup debt that the Singtel group put in place around the time of acquiring the Optus uh, telecommunications business in Australia. Um, mm -hmm. Now, we've just spoken about how long ago um, some transactions happened that are still in dispute. Um, the acquisition of Optus uh, was way back in uh, around 2001, 2002. Um, wow. And so we are 20 years on since that time. Um, the years that are in question here um, are sort of the back years from the financing that was put in place then, so around the 2009, 10, 11, 12 sort of range. Um, and of course, the case has already gone through the, the federal court where the taxpayer lost at first instance. 
So the ATO challenged the interest rate that was charged on that debt. So it was um, inbound debt to Australia. Um, so the ATO challenged the interest rate, arguing that it was too high um, based on arm's length comparables. Um, and interestingly, both parties had sought to rely on expert evidence in the federal court and led um, significant amounts of expert evidence, both on credit ratings and on what the credit rating therefore meant for what margin should have been charged on the loan. Um, mm -hmm. Like some cases that had gone before, including Chevron in Australia, where a whole lot of the expert evidence um, was essentially thrown out. Um, the federal court at first instance here um, also rejected large aspects of the expert evidence that was put. Um, and essentially landed on the arm's length interest rate being the one that the parties actually adopted when they first implemented the arrangement back in 2002. Um, the parties put in place a 1% margin when they did the transaction. Um, there were then amendments to the loan agreements over time and the interest rate moved around as a consequence of those. Uh, but the court um, looked at the experts' reports um, each party challenged aspects of the other side's expert evidence um, and where the court ultimately landed was that um, the arm's length interest rate that independent parties uh, might have been expected to charge in the circumstances was the 1% margin um, that the actual uh, Singtel Singapore and uh, Singtel Optus in Australia actually charged uh, mm -hmm. when they put the transaction in place. So, so that, that was... Uh... I think it was December 2021 was the first instance decision, wasn't it? So, so, so what's happened since then? Uh, so there was a judgment then, and there was then a subsequent judgment that was in either February or March uh, in 2022 last year, so about a year ago, um, which clarified some of the arguments that were unresolved from the first instance, first instance judgment. So that first judgment um, set out all of the principles that the judge's key findings and so on, um, and he then ordered the parties to deal with a couple of sort of consequential issues, um, which they did reasonably quickly. And there was that other judgment that was issued a few months later. Um, Singtel then appealed. And so after filing that appeal, um, it would then have needed to um, sort of crystallise what arguments it was going to make on appeal. Um, and that case is now set down to be heard for four days in April. So we're getting relatively close to that appeal being heard. Um, right. Four days is a relatively long time for an appeal. Often in, in tax matters, um, the appeal is often narrower substantially than trials are. There's not usually much mm -hmm. or any evidence that needs to be put in for an appeal. It's normally legal argument on a couple of particular points. And so maybe it might take a day of the court's time, sometimes two days of the court's time, but um, this case is down for four days um, of hearing the appeal, um, which probably reflects that um, some of the principles in the case are relatively contentious um, and also mm -hmm. that there's quite a few. So some of the um, key findings at first instance um, were in relation to parent company guarantees. Um, so the court concluded based on all of the evidence that was before it that um, it might be expected that there would be a parent company guarantee in relation to this loan. So if Singtel in Australia just went off um, to the market needing a loan, the court concluded that that loan would have been guaranteed by its parent. 
um, mm -hmm. with the obvious consequences for the rate. Um, the, the company's rating being much higher and the interest rate being much lower as a consequence. Um, that got a lot of airplay in the judgment. And so you'd expect um, that Sintel would be raising that as a, a key point in their appeal. Um, and, mm -hmm. and a related issue that arises is um, if you're going to assume that there's a parent company guarantee under the hypothetical where you're assuming that the parties are all independent of one another, then there's a related question about whether you should assume that there's a guarantee fee that Singtel in Australia would pay up to Singtel Singapore in return for getting the guarantee. Um, I don't know, maybe that adds another day <laughs> to the four day hearing. Um, <laughs> Or, or taking a bit of time to work through because they're not necessarily issues that there's a lot of case law on. Australia's only had, um, I think it's five substantive transfer of pricing disputes ever um, across those have happened over the last well, mostly 15 years or so. Um, but we've had different legislation that's applied through that time, a couple of different sets of laws. Um, and of the five cases, only two of those have been in relation to financing, three have been in relation to of goods um, so you know this is only the second case um, there's not a lot of case law to point to um, and so mm -hmm. quite evidence heavy and a lot of material for the court and the parties to get through um, to work out what outcome the court might land on cool okay so it, it sounds like it's it's watched this space in, in terms of what the specific issues to be raised and arguments are going to be and obviously what the reaction to that any other observations or, or thoughts from a litigator's perspective uh well singtel is probably interesting because it is a um as as compared to the uh, pepsi dpt case it's more of a pure tp analysis mm -hmm. um, and so it's probably more likely that some of the consequences from singtel um, particularly around those parent company guarantee points, that those consequences will be relevant for a lot of taxpayers in Australia. Right. So um, working out how to price um, intercompany financing um, involving Australia and other jurisdictions um, has been a key issue the ATO focused on for a long time. Um, mm -hmm. The ATO were successful in the Glencore, um, sorry, in the Chevron case, um, in around 2015, 16 and 17. And after winning that case, um, they've had a pretty rigorous compliance program around the pricing of intercompany loans, um, both into and out of Australia, um, but particularly loans into Australia. Um, Australia is a capital um, importing country um, and we have a 30% tax rate. Um, so the ATO is very keenly focused on how much interest is being paid out. And so, any of the principles that come out of Singtel um, will be you know, applied across the whole market, presumably, um, because the case will be, after it's decided on appeal, um, a full federal court authority. So uh, three federal court judges, um, which is only one level below the high court in Australia. Great stuff. Well, look forward to hearing all about that. Should we move on to the last case? So Mylan, and um, I hadn't heard of this one before you mentioned it. So I'll be really interested to hear the background. Sure. So um, as for the, the Pepsi case as well, so the Mylan case has been filed in the federal court, but it hasn't been heard yet. And so it means that there's some information that's out in the public domain, um, 
but not a lot. But from what we can see, um, this case concerns both the transfer pricing provisions as well as the general anti-avoidance rule in part 4A. Um, and that's the first time that there's been um, a court case in Australia which has concerned both sets of provisions. So the ATO is making alternative arguments that either the transfer pricing rules apply or alternatively, the general anti-avoidance rule applies. Mm -hmm. And the ATO has, um, in some cases, it has run before. Um, there have been, um, in the way it's put its arguments, um, sort of alluding to the taxpayer's purpose being to shift profits out of Australia and therefore the transfer pricing rules apply, but it hasn't argued in any of the transfer pricing cases. It hasn't argued expressly that the general anti-avoidance rule also applies in the alternative. And this case is the first time that, that it is running both of those um, arguments in the same case. So to touch on the facts, um, the case concerns a transaction that happened in 2007, so a long time ago, mm -hmm. um, when Mylan bought the Alpha Farm business from Merck. And as part of the transaction, there was a debt pushed down into Australia and it resulted in the Australia entity being geared up to the thin cap limit, which at that time was 75%. And uh, the ATO's challenge is in relation to some of those interest deductions, not necessarily all of them from what we can see, but its main arguments point to the debt levels that the whole global group had after that transaction, which were closer to 50 or 60%. And so the ATO is seeking to knock out the additional deductions that were taken up to 75%. And as I mentioned, arguing either that the TP rules apply and um, parties operating independently wouldn't have geared up to a 75% level. They would have only geared up to the global group level um, or alternatively, based on um, the general anti-avoidance rule, um, essentially arguing that the dominant purpose of that aspect of the structure was to obtain a tax benefit, being the mm -hmm. extra interest deductions that were claimed in Australia. I see. Okay. And what are the uh, what, what stage is, is the case at now and what, what are the next steps? So it's been filed only a few months ago, late last year. Um, and there's usually quite a period of time, especially in... Um, evidence heavy matters like transfer pricing matters and anti-avoidance matters there's quite a period of time then for all of the taxpayers evidence and the ATO's evidence to be filed in court um, that could take a year or so to occur mm -hmm. um, it often takes quite a while to work out exactly how much evidence is needed um, to assemble all of that evidence for matters like this one it would probably need um, so what we call lay evidence so evidence just from the business about um, I mean, the ATO probably already knows how much debt there was, but to the extent the taxpayer needs to put in any um, evidence from its business records and so on, it needs to do that, as well as gather and put in any expert evidence it needs as well. And in transfer pricing matters um, in particular, that's very important because the taxpayer will be trying to prove that um, this level of interest um, would have been justified between independent parties and that's that's a hypothetical test that taxpayers need to get you know economic expertise on as well yeah absolutely and and it's it sounds like there are potentially significant amounts involved in, in terms of that that case so perhaps it, it will have legs and and we'll, we'll all end up with some a, a greater level of learning in in terms of uh 
how these these kind of situations should be managed in the future. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And the other um, point around the Milan case because um, it concerns right back to a transaction in two thousand and seven. Um, mm-hmm and a whole range of years through to, I think, not quite this year, but uh, it might roll through to 2018 or 19 or thereabouts. Um, It spans both sets of the newest transfer pricing rules in Australia. Um, So we had transfer pricing, the the current transfer pricing rules in Australia, what we refer to as subdivision A15B, have applied since the 2014 year. Um, And so those rules of themselves have not yet been tested in a court. So it means that the Milan case is both the first test of the current transfer pricing rules in court, but also the first time there's been a transfer pricing and anti-avoidance case run together. Um, so hopefully it does make it to the end because there'll be some interesting learnings one way or the other. Great stuff. Well, um, thank you very much. So so we, we, we talked about those three cases, um, Pepsi, Singtel and, and Milan. Any key takeaways from your perspective, whether from a, a purely Australian point of view or from a global perspective? Yeah, I've um, probably got a couple of comments that, that I thought were Australian driven when I put them together, but um, on reflection, they're probably things that taxpayers all around the world need to think about in their own jurisdictions. Um, and something you often see as a tax litigator is obviously we're looking at transactions well after they've happened. And mm. so um, taxpayers are of course, in the unfortunate position of needing to decide as they move along through transactions and then through dealing with revenue authorities, um, making strategic decisions at all of those junctures around um, whether they're asking for tax certainty up front and trying to get APAs in place or rulings um, and the time and cost that's associated and trying to go through those programs, which may or may not be successful. Um, that's one option. The other option is um, bolts and braces and make sure you're very happy with your structure and ready to defend it for later if it does come under scrutiny. And um, we can assure you from Australia's jurisdiction that the ATO is very well resourced. It issues a lot of public guidance for multinationals um, and through the justified trust reviews that it does on a rolling basis for the top, top 100 very frequently. Um, but the top 1,000 taxpayers um, every couple of years as well. Um, The ATO looks quite closely at material transactions and does it on a rolling basis. So it does mean for multinationals that need to be prepared for that routine kind of review. Um, That's possible to do um, and you can make sure that you have your ducks in a row, um, but you do need to stay on top of things and... and, um, back to the point we were talking about before where the DPT um, can apply to transactions that were put in place even before that legislation was passed. Um, Even having the perfect transaction Bible that was prepared at the time and and put in the Mm -hmm. drawer to hopefully never be used again. Um, Obviously something like that requires reassessment when there's legislative change. Um, And we're about to see another layer of that in Australia soon um, with a multinational tax integrity package that's been announced. Um, and we all know in every jurisdiction that Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 are on the way as well. So that's going to cause a lot more um, reviewing existing tax structures, working out what might mm-hmm. need to change um, and having a sufficient level of comfort that uh, what is in place is okay <laughs> if, um, if and when the scrutiny arrives. Yeah. Okay. 
I mean, I, I, I guess those points that you made are a common theme across the board, and as, as, as you are, you are flagging. So it's it's not just looking at transactions as they happen and the unbundling type examples like such as Pepsi. It's it's also the regular review because risk profiles change and and therefore reconsidering is it appropriate to maintain those structures or do they need to be modified um, and also taking the Singtel learnings certainly from a corporate perspective or legal perspective which is when you're making changes it's to document the rationale for those changes as as much as you can or as, as far as reasonably possible so that you do have a paper trail for when it's needed maybe 10 years later or, or, or whatever so that 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 kind of discipline is clearly key. yeah that, that's right paul and um even regulator views on different areas of law or their priorities change as well um you know just the the global business environment can move so fast and um you know these sort of focuses on royalties for example because um, the amount of money that's in the technology sector um, and crossing borders around the world is now so much higher than it was even five years ago, let alone 10 years ago. Um, really brings into focus these um, things like the tax treatment of royalty payments. And the Pepsi case is possibly a um, you know, case that could have existed 100 years ago in relation to manufacturing <laughs> physical goods and selling right. physical goods um, across border around the world. Um, but there's a renewed focus on um, intangibles because of the amounts of money that are that are tied up in those sectors and crossing borders um, and as a consequence royalties are a hot area to be focused on um, and that doesn't just affect the tech companies it affects everyone else who's um, paying royalties or things that are like royalties as well yeah absolutely well it looks like we're running out of time on, on this podcast. Thank you so much, Andy, for sharing your thoughts, sharing your in, insights with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, hope to catch up with you again soon and uh, look forward to hearing from the updates from the, the decisions as they come. Great. Thanks, Paul. And um, look forward to you getting back to Australia sometime soon. <laughs> Absolutely. Take care. Thanks. You too. Thanks for listening to the LCN Legal Podcast. We'd love to hear what you think. You'll find the contact details on our website, lcnlegal.com. You'll find more information about the Singtel case there as well, and many of the other specific issues discussed in this episode, all in the training hub section. If you'd like to hear more from Andy, he's very active on LinkedIn, and we would definitely recommend that you follow him there. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. Go to your podcast provider and search for the LCN Legal Podcast. Until next time, goodbye.